Welcome to Beyond Your News Feed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. My name is William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. The Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th that caused the massacre of 1,200 Israelis and the taking of 240 hostages was the latest outbreak of a 75-year conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. Since its creation in 1948, Israel has had to fight four wars with neighboring Arab states to preserve itself and face two major uprisings, intifadas, of Palestinians under its control. A fateful outcome of the 1967 war was the Israeli conquest of two areas not a part of the original Israel state, the West Bank and Gaza. Military control of these areas meant Israeli responsibility for millions of Palestinians, many refugees and the descendants of refugees from the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. The political status of this population forms the heart of the current conflict. Over the past 50 years, many Israelis and Palestinians, recognizing the right to self-determination of both Israelis and Palestinians, have sought a solution to this problem that would allow a Jewish-Israeli state to exist side by side with a free and independent Palestinian state. Such a two-state solution has proved elusive in part because of the existence of extremists on both sides, such as Hamas and the right-wing Israeli parties that see the only solution as the expulsion or annihilation of the other side. Also, distrust and grievances deriving from years of violence have made negotiating a resolution to the conflict difficult. Doubtless, the events of the past two months, the Hamas evasion and the Israeli army's invasion of Gaza, resulting in the death of thousands of Palestinians, will fuel further distrust and grievance in the years to come. In past conflicts, support for the Israeli government seemed automatic from the entire American Jewish community, from American politicians, and from the broader American public. In this conflict, although all are horrified by the brutality and inhumanity of the Hamas attack, there has emerged division over the Israeli response and understandings of the roots causes of the Hamas attack. What has happened to attitudes of American Jews and the American public and its, towards Israel and its policies in the past few years? How has this shift in attitudes affected responses to the current conflict? How has this conflict created divisions among Democrats and the support for the Biden administration? And how have Republicans responded? What impact may these divisions have for support for Israel and impact the current war? To address these questions, I've asked two of my colleagues, both born in Israel, Dr. Ruth Ben-Artsy and Adam Myers, to address these questions. Both Adam and Ruth are proud Jews, proud children of Israel, and proud Americans. But as you will learn from our conversation, they did not agree on everything about the current war. To some degree, they reflect the divisions in the Jewish community and among Americans about this conflict. So let us begin. To start off, Ruth and Adam, uh, could you both say a little something about your background and your connection to Israel? Ruth, you want to start off? Uh, sure. Um, so I was born in Israel um, to uh, parents who were born in Israel. Uh, in fact, on my grandmother's side, I am uh, uh, ninth generation 
uh, Israeli-Palestinian, or Palestinian, because my grandmothers were actually both born in Palestine uh, before 1948. Um, and I grew up in Israel. So um, I, I do speak English pretty well, so it might be deceiving. Uh, but I did grow up in Israel. I served in the Israeli IDF. It was required uh, for the two IDF, years. The IDF, that's the Israeli Defense Forces. The Israeli so. Defense Forces for two years. And I did my undergraduate studies in Israel. So I came to this country um, for graduate school, and then I stayed. OK. And you're a, a dual Israeli-American citizen. Yes, right? I became an American citizen in 2017. OK. I wonder why that year. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, we won't go into that. Adam, what's your story? Um, well, uh, like Ruth, I was also born in Israel, but under fairly different circumstances. So uh, my father is American, uh, born and bred in the Midwest. But when he was a young man, he traveled to Israel to volunteer on a kibbutz. So for those who don't know, kibbutzes are communal agricultural settlements that played a big role in the development of Israel in the early part of its history. And... In the 1970s, when my dad went to Israel, it was very common for young people, really from all over the world, uh, Jewish and non-Jewish people, uh, to come to Israel for a period of time to volunteer on kibbutzes. It was kind of a coming-of-age experience of sorts. And so my dad did that. And while he was there, he met my mom, who's a native Israeli. Um, and they got married and had me and my sisters. And we relocated to the U.S. when I was little. So I grew up mostly here. Uh, but uh, my family maintained close connections to Israel. All my mom's family is still there. Um, and two years ago, during my sabbatical from PC, I had a fellowship at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem uh, where I was privileged to be able to teach a course on American politics to Israeli students, uh, both Jews and Palestinians, I should add. So uh, I, you know, I, I don't consider myself to be an academic authority on this conflict necessarily, but I... <laughs> but I know a fair amount about it. Okay, great. Well, thanks for telling us a little something about your, your backgrounds. So to start this off, you know, I, I think there's a lot of terminology that's thrown around around this conflict, and people who are knowledgeable about uh, the history of Israel or uh, have known something about the conflict kind of understand these terms. But, but I was thinking about the average PC undergraduate, uh, maybe about the age of our producer here, Ellie, uh, and uh, I was wondering, but to the degree to which they really understand what do these terms mean? Uh, and so I, I think what I'd like to do is to start off talking about some terminology. And I guess to start, uh, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about Zionism. Exactly what is Zionism? Uh, what, are its, what does it mean or what are its meanings? Great question. Uh, do you want me to go first? Or? Yeah, if you, if, you can, if, you can, uh, if you can find a meaning, then I, I'm going to be impressed. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, why don't you start, and then, and then uh, Ruth will add her, 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 her comments. All right. Yeah. Well, I'll give it a shot. This is, we could do a whole podcast just on this question. I think that at core, Zionism as an ideology or as a political movement, um, going back to its beginnings in the late 19th century, um, is really the belief that a solution to the Jewish problem, the problem of anti-Semitism that Jews faced in, in many countries throughout the ages, um, required the uh, creation of some sort of Jewish homeland in uh, the land of Israel or Palestine, depending on the term you prefer to use for the region we're talking about. 
Um, and I say some sort of homeland because, you know, originally the Zionists had many different ideas about what kind of homeland that would be. Um, some favored a Jewish state, some favored a cultural home that didn't have any kind of political uh, quality to it. Some favored a binational state in which Jews and Arabs would have equal national rights. Some favored some sort of confederacy model. Um, and I think historians have shown that there wasn't really a consensus among the early Zionists um, about what the political characteristic of the entity that they were creating was going to be. That consensus didn't really develop until the late 1930s. Um, but of course, by, in 1948, Israel, a Jewish state, was created. And so I think ever since then, uh, Zionism has come to mean support for Israel as a Jewish state, uh, whatever that means. And anti-Zionism has come to mean opposition to Israel as a Jewish state, whatever that means. What do you have to say about that, Ruth? <laughs> um, so, you know, most of it actually is, is historically correct, um, and I concur. Um, but, uh, but I will add that Zionism and, and the way it's defined has changed over the years, and it's changed also since 1948. So, you know, the, some of those vague, um, vague things that Adam just mentioned, like a Jewish state, whatever that means, that's a big thing. Um, that, you know, that is a really big question mark on this term of Zionism and what it means. I, but I do want to emphasize, because I think that is, you know, one of the most important things to remember, is that Zionism is a political ideology. Um, it is not a religion. It's a political ideology. And it's not, it overlaps with Judaism, but it is not all-encompassing of Judaism. In fact, there were many Jews who were opposed to Zionists, uh, just to Zionism, sorry. And there's, and there's uh, um, both Orthodox and secular Jews today um, that are still opposed uh, to Zionism. There's different versions of being in opposition to Zionism. There's movements of post-Zionists, anti-Zionists, non-Zionists, um, that who are Jewish. So not every Jewish person is a Zionist. Not everybody um, views this political um, uh, solution to violence against Jews that manifested in, 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 as anti-Semitism in Europe um, as the same kind of political political solution. And because it is so, and this is kind of my personal take, because it is such a vague term and prone to different uh, interpretation has, and has morphed into different things over the years, uh, it is often hijacked by whoever's in power and whoever's the most vocal. Right now, the state of Israel, the official, the, the government of Israel, um, and, and kind of the, the official vision of Zionism that comes out of the leadership in Israel is one that is, uh, that is extremely right-wing, that views the rights of a Jewish state, and primarily for this to be a Jewish state um, that is majority Jewish in the entire um, land, including those territories occupied in 1967. Well, let's, well, first, I, I said one comment. I, you mentioned that, that from the beginning, Zionism has been uh, contested within the Jewish community. Yeah. And certainly some of the early anti-Zionists were religious Jews, right? Yeah. Who thought that that uh, the only time uh, that there could be a return to Zion is when the Messiah comes, right? So yeah. that So that this was kind of an irreligious uh, movement to advocate for creating a, a, a Zion uh, on earth uh, today. Yeah. Uh, but in 1948, uh, a state is created, 
those different permutations of how to understand Zionism that Adam was talking about are kind of resolved by the creation of this, this state. Uh, so what, what does it mean to say that Israel is a Jewish state? What did it mean in 1948? And as Ruth has already alluded to, has that meaning evolved over the years? Adam, you want to tackle that first? Yeah. <laughs> uh, sure, I will try. So, you know, Israel was founded as a secular state. And even though there have been major demographic changes in Israel over the course of its history, to this day, um, secular people are the largest component of Israel's Jewish population. Um, and I think if you, would, you were to ask uh, a garden variety secular Israeli who's actually thought about this, um, what does it mean to you to have a Jewish state? I think they would basically say two things. One is they want a state that promotes the culture of Israeli Jews. And so it's a state where Hebrew, the language of the Jews, is the official language, uh, a state that uses the Jewish calendar, that um, honors the Jewish holidays, and so on and so forth. Um, th these kinds of cultural policies are, are commonplace among countries all over the world. You know, lots of countries have national languages. Uh, lots of countries take active steps as a matter of state policy to promote those languages, particularly if they feel as though those languages are vulnerable. Lots of countries have cultural national holidays. None of this is all that unusual. Um, I think then the other thing that most secular Israelis would say in response to the question of what does it mean to have a Jewish state is uh, they want the state to be a refuge for Jews that are in distress, right? That's part of the reason Israel was founded. And so they, they believe that Israel should um, give uh, preferences to uh, people from outside Israel who are Jewish who want to immigrate, particularly if um, they are facing um, persecution or distress. Um, and that also isn't, I mean, there are unusual aspects to it, but there are many other countries, including advanced democracies, that give certain preferences to certain ethnic groups in terms of immigration. But that's secular Israelis, right? There are many religious Israelis, uh, and uh, in, in fact, a growing percentage of Israeli Jews are religious, and they have a different uh, view of what a Jewish state means. They want um, a greater role for the Jewish religion in public life and in the state's affairs. And so the debate over how Jewish uh, Israel should be, you know, has been a debate over the course of its history, and it's certainly one that continu continues today. It's, it's what was really at the core of all of this unrest that was occurring in Israel in the year before October 7th. Um, so I'll leave it at that. Ruth? Okay. So here's where we start to see some divergence. Um, so I, I want to point out one thing that I that that is contributing to a lot of confusion, including among those who are very immersed in Israeli politics, in Jewish politics here in the United States, is the conflation of religion and ethnicity. And the argument, because because um, Adam mentioned that many countries have. Um, certain immigration laws that focus on to give preference to certain ethnicities, but this is assuming that Judaism is an ethnicity. Um, it becomes very problematic to define, and in fact, in Israel, and I remember this growing up in Israel um, uh, in the 1980s, in the 1990s, there's, there was a very, very, very vocal debate over the question of who is a Jew. And who is considered a Jew? What can somebody convert to being Jew Jewish? Um, we see this in the United States, for example. Um, 
what sort of Judaism is preferred? Uh, and this is this is where I disagree with Adam because I do think that Israel over the last few decades has become more religious, and the demographics are not as as, as majority Jewish secular as he suggests. Part of it is deceiving because uh, what is secular appearing in from my perspective is actually not really secular. Um, the Israeli education system is not is is, is connected to religion. Um, there's many different uh, aspects of statehood and civic life that Americans who are used to separation of church and state would just be flabbergasted um, when they were, were would be confronted by by the way in which religion is incorporated into public school curriculums. Religion is incorporated into everyday life. Um, so even secular Jews are completely exposed and, and, and children in school um, to religion. That's one thing. The, the, the second thing is, is the, the official religion of the state also means that it is a public sector. There are chief rabbis in Israel who are paid for by taxpayers' money. Um, these are orthodox rabbis, and this is the next issue of, of, of what is considered Jewish is what kind of stream of, 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 of Jewish is supported by this identity of a Jewish state. And in Israel, it's orthodoxy. Um, so for example, Adam mentioned the garden variety of secular Jews. Um, I think that was the term, that, that, sorry, that was the term that you had used. So let me give you an example of my own personal garden variety of Israeli Jews from my own family. One of my grandfathers, who was a refugee from uh, from Czechoslovakia from in World War II, who was not a Zionist, and he came to Israel, to Palestine, because he has no other choice. He was escaping the Holocaust. He later met my grandmother, and they, or immediately met my grandmother, and they got married, and he settled in Israel and became, um, became a kind of a very um, diehard um, Zionist and uh, and uh, remained secular. He grew up secular in Eastern Europe. Uh, and he would always say that the synagogue he never goes to in his neighborhood must be an Orthodox synagogue. And any other form of Judaism, conservative, reform Judaism, is terrible and is a terrible and is not considered Jewish. This is my secular grandfather. So the, the, the uh, support for religious pluralism within Judaism is very problematic because once you start to define religion, you st we start to get into all of these different debates over what constitutes that. And that also pertains, the last thing I'll say on this issue, is immigration. We saw waves of immigration, what Adam said, you know, suggested, this kind of Jews who are in distress, who would have access to a place, a homeland that is safe for Jews, it also problematic after the fall of the Soviet Union with Russian Jews who were flocking, who were f trying to, to immigrate to Israel, fa were faced with some inhumane treatment by the Israeli authorities, trying to check whether they're really Jewish or not. And it's still a controversy in Israel to this day. Same thing happened with Ethiopian and Somalian Jews who are up to this day, even those who are immigrated, discriminated against in Israel. So. Uh, this whole question of how to define religion, the extent to which religious religion is pluralist, uh, pluralistic in Israel, and how Israeli Jews regard Jews from around the world, and whether Judaism is an ethnicity or a religion, these still remain very controversial. Yeah, but, but Ruth, it strikes me that 
that these are issues that in a democracy would be settled. And I'm right. making the assumption here that this is a democratic state. Yeah. So can I can I yeah, interject sure. here? Because let me just briefly re respond to what Ruth had to say. Um, I agree with Ruth's description of trends in Israeli society for the most part. There's no doubt that over the past several decades, religion and state in Israel have become increasingly entangled. And as I mentioned earlier in my remarks, that's really at the heart of all of the civic unrest that was occurring in Israel in the year preceding October 7th, right? There were many, many Israelis, we're talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Israelis that went into, into the streets on a weekly basis to, in effect, uh, protest the uh, growing power of the religious right in Israel, even though the, the protests were about, you know, something like a, a more kind of narrow institutional reform, but it stood for um, these larger social trends. And so, you know, I agree with you, Bill, right? Um, in the modern world, we generally think that the citizens of a country, the citizens of a democracy should resolve these kinds of uh, differences or struggles for themselves, right? We're having major debates in America right now about what kind of country America wants to be, right? Um, but I don't think Americans would be all that thrilled about being lectured to about what country they should be by people from the outside. But this, these conflicts, that, Adam, you've talked about the demonstrations in the year before October 7th, uh, that also divided the American Jewish community, right? That there have been, that that conflict is has spilled over uh, into uh, Jews outside of Israel. Ruth, you want to speak to that maybe? How did, how did that spillover happen? Um, well, so first of all, you know, the, the connection to the outside world, we can't really pretend that Israel is an island in of, of its own, and it's, and it's a, what I don't view as a democracy, but let's say I want to be democracy, at least in some of its territory, um, independently. Um, it's not. Um, the, the United States and, and initially also other countries uh, have been very, very much involved in Israeli policymaking and Israeli decision making in support. Israel would not be able to fight its war in Gaza without American financial support. Um, American uh, the Jewish diaspora has been uh, traditionally incredibly involved, including um, in in supporting political parties or certain Jewish trends. Uh, I think that many of our listeners might be familiar, for example, with Chabad, uh, with a certain Jewish Orthodox movement that we see uh, in many cities, and, and not just cities, even rural areas around the world, uh, but that is kind of like a Messianic Orthodox Jewish, um, Jewish um, sect uh, that is also very powerful in Israel and was very powerful in galvanizing the right wing and helping this right wing government um, with a lot of donations from foreign money. So so Israel is not an island on its own that makes democratic decisions that are not influenced from outside by outside sources. And, and, and here in the United States, the divisions um, reflect that. And these divisions also include um, political influences. Um, it's especially notable that this current Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who's been Prime Minister in Israel on and off since 1996, uh, but mostly on through since 2009, has turned Israel into a uh, political punching bag in the United States. Uh, while there used to be consensus about Israel's important strategic, 
um, interest to the United States, uh, a relationship that was based on values and especially the value of democracy, uh, as we mentioned before. And, and as Israel, if Israel is, is sliding away from democracy and if we stop to define it as a democracy, then that question of whether there th those shared interests still exist is a real question. Um, then the, the, the Israel becoming a political uh, a political punching bag in American politics also affects uh, what we call Jewish politics in the United States, and that's what I've been seeing yeah, so, here. Yeah, could could we back up a little bit? Uh, you mentioned the word diaspora. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we need to define that for our listeners. Well, uh, when we say diaspora uh, within the Jewish world, what we mean is uh, Jews who live outside Israel. Um, all Jewish communities outside right. Israel are a part of the Jewish diaspora. Um, and at this point, you know, we're, we're now reaching a point where um, nearly half of world Jewry lives in Israel and slightly over half of world Jewry lives in the diaspora. Right. And, I mean, beginning in 1948, these communities outside of Israel uh, seem to have a very strong connection with Israel, whether or not they immigrated there or, 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 or had, you know, even visited there. Uh, could you say something about that and and how that connects to the point Ruth made about about a consensus for many years about support for Israel uh, until recent concerns about the evolution of the government? Am I characterizing that history right? I, I think so. Uh, there's I mean, there's a lot of complexity here, much of which we don't have time to go over. You know, many diaspora communities. Um, prior to the State of Israel were not especially enamored of Zionism. Um, and, uh, you know, like, Reform Judaism in the U.S. until, I think, the 1930s was not on record, or met, most Reform rabbis were not on record as supporting Zionism. Um, but uh, certainly after 1948, um, the global Jewish diaspora, for the most part, rallied around Israel. And, and in particular, after 1967, uh, Israel became a very fundamental part of Jewish identity in the United States. Um, and I think, for the most part, it continues to be a pretty fundamental part of Jewish identity in the United States. We can get into some of these changes that we're seeing um, in, in greater detail, and I'm happy to do that. But by and large, the data I've seen thus far, the evidence I've seen thus far, doesn't suggest that the changes are quite as large as, as one might think. But there have been, in recent years, a divide in the Jewish community around support for Israel, related, as Ruth alluded to, to recent Israeli governments and policies, correct? Yes. I mean, you know, I'll just give a couple of, of political examples here. You know, Benjamin Netanyahu, for example, publicly opposed, uh, as Prime Minister of Israel, publicly opposed um, uh, President Obama's um, uh, agreement, nuclear agreement with Iran and, and was invited by Republicans to speak uh, on Capitol Hill uh, without consulting with the, the U.S. administration. That was a big blow. And, and in fact, this Israeli intervention in American politics uh, has been, I think, from my point of view, as a non-expert in American politics, uh, quite significant. Uh, and when I see elected officials in the United States flocking to uh, trying to, to kind of prove who is who is a who is a better supporter of Israel, uh, who is more pro-Israeli. Um, it 
it pains me because I don't think that that Israel this this is not actually uh, real support for Israel. Um, I also want to point out that this kind of ongoing what I when I was mentioning before and. What, um, and, and Adam is correct that this is much more complex um, than we have time to get into, uh, this consensus around Israel, part of it was because there were uh, a couple of major organizations that claimed to represent the Jewish diaspora, or at least American Jews. That isn't necessarily the case. There are many American Jews, as Adam said, that were not interested in Israel or not interested um, in in, uh, in, in or critical of Israel and did not think that those organizations represented them, but those organizations became very powerful in being a voice. Um, and that has changed over the last decade or two as well. Could you, could you specify some of those organizations? Like, what are you thinking? Of? Right, so the older organizations that used to be not so controversial uh, were APAC, or APAC um, and the ADL. And, and could APAC stands for? For the uh, American-Israeli uh, Public Affairs Committee, okay. I believe. And the ADL? Anti-Defamation League. Anti-Defamation right. League. Did I get APAC right? Yeah, I want to make sure I get that right. Um, yes, and over and in the last um, uh, more than a decade, 15 years or so, we have some new organizations uh, that have um, that have sprouted. And, and the reason for that was that was uh, um, was disagreement among American Jews over whether these organizations actually properly represent them and represent their their perceived connection to Israel and what they think American foreign policy with regard to Israel should look like. And uh, this coincided with Israel's shift to the right and to more religious right and to less pluralism, uh, less religious pluralism. And what, what are some of those organizations that, so, that, that articulated this alternative view? Right. So one of them is J Street, um, and the other one is Jewish Voice for Peace. Another one is If Not Now. Uh, these are all organizations that we're seeing uh, in now, right now, during the Gaza conflict as actively protesting um, against the war. Or uh, We have seen them in the headlines much more, but they've existed already in, at least in the last 10 to 20 years, uh, and they represent... Uh, Jewish community that, or Jewish communities uh, that have a different perspective on their perceived relationship uh, with Israel. So some of those in those organizations will uh, um, self-identify as Zionists, some would not. Uh, they all identify, would identify as proud Jews. Uh, there are Israeli Jews who are members of these organizations. J Street, for example, has an office in Israel. Um, that who that is led uh, by a former diplomat. In fact, the former general counsel, Israeli general counsel to Boston, uh, is the head of J Street Israel. Um, so there is a contingency in Israel that is also very distressed with some of the American Jewish organizations that have used Israel again as a political punching bag and have uh, made it politicized, uh, so that uh, it's part of the political debate between Democrats and Republicans. And now we see this within parties also, within the Democratic Party, for example, uh, that it's politicized instead of thinking about foreign policy, um, you know, my more my expertise in international relations in terms of interests, in terms of preferences, in terms of um, uh, what is the best, what is the most 
foreign policy, how do foreign policy decisions, uh, uh, how are they made in the United States uh, to follow American interests, uh, with the idea that we could reach a moment, and we have had those moments in the past, and I can give examples later, uh, where Israeli interests and American interests diverge, uh, and they're not the same. And so what kind of American foreign policy would we expect to see then? Adam, you want to comment on all that? <laughs> yeah. So, okay, let me first uh, discuss uh, changing attitudes within the Jewish community in the United States, and then I'll, I'll discuss um, changing attitudes on Israel within the larger American population. So um, American Jews have long been um, strongly democratic and primarily liberal, um, but um, in the same way that they can distinguish between uh, the current government of the United States and the United States as a whole, um, American Jews are able to distinguish between the current government of Israel and the state of Israel or the Israeli people. And the statistics that we have, the most recent statistics that we have, suggest that you know even as of 2021, 2022, American Jews continue to strongly identify with Israel. 83% say that Israel is, is very important to them. Um, over half feel emotionally attached to it, even though most have never visited. Um, the numbers are not actually all that different among younger Americans. I don't know about Gen Zers, but among millennials, 70% uh, of millennials think that the survival of the state of Israel is necessary uh, to the survival of the Jewish people. That's according to a survey that the American Jewish Committee conducted a year ago. Um, and, and, and it is certainly true, uh, what Ruth says, that there are these new organizations that are much more critical of Israel, that are in many cases anti-Israel. Um, I think that thus far, uh, those or the evidence suggests that those organizations, they receive an outsized amount of attention from the media, but they don't reflect a truly significant shift among the American Jewish population. And it's also important to bear in mind that um, there are demographic shifts uh, that are occurring within the American Jewish population right now that are going to, over time, counterbalance those shifts. So what I mean by that is, the, by far the fastest growing segment of the American Jewish community is the Orthodox community. And Orthodox Jews, including ultra-Orthodox Jews these days, are steadfastly pro-Israel. So whatever shift toward attitudes more critical of Israel is, is occurring among less observant Jews, that will be counterbalanced by a growing share of American Jews being Orthodox. So that's one thing. Um, now, in terms of uh, the attitudes of Americans toward Israel and, and what the data suggests regarding changes there, um, there are sh small shifts, um, but thus far the evidence suggests that Americans continue to be substantially pro-Israel. You know, according to the recent YouGov Economist surveys, um, Americans are much more likely to be more sympathetic toward Israelis than Palestinians. Um, there uh, is a big age gap, um, which is certainly significant. Um, 18 to 29-year-olds um, indicate that they're, the percentage of them who say they're more, more sympathetic toward the Israelis is equal to the percentage of them who say that they're more sympathetic toward the Palestinians. Um, but by and large, the vast bulk of younger Americans say that either they feel equally sympathetic toward both sides or that they just don't know. Um, and so, and I should say this, even, uh, even the partisan divide is a little bit exaggerated by the mainstream media. Even among Democrats, there's greater sympathy toward Israel than to the Palestinians as of 
um, last month when I, YouGov conducted some of the surveys that I'm citing. So, and then if you look at so, so Adam, the uh, most the indications in the press are that uh, Democratic politicians in Congress, by and large, have been very supportive of Israel, along with the Biden administration. So you're saying that's they're reflecting their constituents, actually, that they're they're not at odds with with the majority of their constituents? Primarily, yes. I, I don't deny that there is a shift that is occurring among Democrats, but it's not as large as um, the media is making it out to be. And, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, the point that you're making is right. You know, the, the members of Congress who are critical of Israel get a lot of attention from the media, but in the House of Representatives, they make up nine out of 213 Democrats, right? So this is not a large contingent of the Democratic Party in the House of Representatives. It may grow um, over time, or it may shrink a lot. will depend on what happens in Democratic primaries. We'll just have to wait and see about that. But at this point, um, the evidence that there's this massive shift going on within the Democratic Party or the Democratic electorate, I don't see it in the data yet. I actually do see it in the data. Um, so uh, J Street polling shows, at least in, uh, within Democratic voters, and I think Adam's right with Republican voters that are more conservative, um, but within Democratic voters, we do see a shift in uh, more Democrats. In fact, the majority of Democratic primary voters um, not conflating support for Israel and criticism of the Israeli government, um, and in fact encouraging members of Congress to criticize Israeli government uh, in some ways that are very much in opposition to the longstanding views of organizations like APAC and ADL. Um, and I think that is a shifting, that taking that public stance is a shift, um, and we see this also in terms of uh, the uh, the um, representatives that they vote for. Um, I think that the shift in in within the Democratic caucus um, does reflect that. There's other there's other points of data of of preferred candidates, of favorable uh, favorability towards Israel, of um, of willingness to call out Israel's occupation as apartheid, uh, the percentages of Jewish voters who are uh, who uh, who say the word apartheid uh, is growing, uh, who oppose the occupation, uh, the, those percentages are growing. There is growing sympathy to Palestinian plight, um, certainly among Democratic voters, and much more criticism, as Adam even said, that this, this uh, ability to separate the Israeli government and the Israeli people, well, the Israeli government, as we said before, was democratically elected by the majority of Israelis. Uh, and so uh, uh, at least American um, Jewish or American Democratic voters um, have uh, 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 taking a take a stance, a larger, uh, uh, a growing stance that is opposed sometimes to what the majority of Israeli Jews um, are, are uh, favoring. Uh, so, and they're willing to be critical of it and they're willing to uh, pressure the American government uh, to be critical of it. And that was reflected, for example, that the, I think the best example is the strong support among Jewish Democratic voters to the Iran deal uh, that was signed by Obama in 2015, while there was very strong across the board opposition to that deal in Israel and from the Israeli government. And so we are seeing that there's a growing willingness 
to take a stand that is in opposition to Israel's government, even if democratically elected. Yeah, I just think Ruth is 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 not interpreting that data in the right way. Uh, Jewish Democratic voters supported the Obama-Iran deal because they're Democrats, and most of them are not exposed ad nauseum to emails or uh, or letters from APAC. Uh, most people approach American politics, regardless of their race, ethnicity, religion, um, from the perspective of partisanship, as, we, as, as we've discussed on this podcast in the past, Bill. And, and American Jews are no different. And again, you know, I think American Jews um, and Americans in general are able to distinguish between a particular government's policies and the the state that they represent or the people of uh, the state that they're serving. And uh, it just, at the end of the day, uh, the evidence is is not really there in the data, at least the data that I've seen, that there is a fundamental shift going on uh, in terms of either American Jews or Americans in their underlying sympathies toward the state of Israel or Israelis. Um, I think there's a greater recognition of the plight facing Palestinians um, and a greater recognition of the need to come to a solution that um, secures the self-determination and the freedom and the dignity of both peoples. Um, But I don't yet see in the data a significant rise in anti-Israel sentiment among either American Jews or Americans. Oh, I don't call, I actually don't call that anti-Israel. And what Adam just said um, makes me more optimistic because if voters are um, mostly partisan or vote on their values uh, rather than on, uh, then when those values lead the American government to prefer to take a strong stance that is critical of Israel, critical of Israel is not anti-Israel. I'd like to make sure that that's clear. Um, and we can all agree on that. Uh, yes, and that that in, and that includes, for example, boycotting. That includes financial. That includes um, that includes um, um, conditions on aid. All of that is not anti-Israel policy. That is a critical stance on Israel, and that is an American interest. If American, if the American government or the American voters are interested in having a certain receipts given back to them on how American foreign aid is being used, um, that is certainly a very reasonable policy to expect. It's not an anti-Israel position. So what Andrew, what sorry, what Adam just mentioned actually makes me optimistic uh, that American voters are not going to punish. Uh, their elected officials uh, for uh, representing American interests rather than Israeli interests. Now, all this discussion uh, relies on data collected before October 7th. That's right. And this has been a major event in in Israeli history, American history, world history, I would say. Uh, Do you think the current war, uh, how how has that perhaps affected these perceptions of Israel? Uh, and I, well, I'd, actually, I'd like I both should, of you to. I, I'd like both of you to speculate. You obviously, we don't have the data, but what, what's your impression from what you've seen in the press and and talking to to uh, people you know in the Jewish community? Well, let me amend uh, what I what I just said a little bit ago. Some of the data that I cited comes from this month, as a matter of fact. Uh, the YouGov Economist polls that I okay. cited are post October seventh, and so. Um, you know the data we we have thus far 
suggest that there hasn't been this seismic shift in opinion on this conflict among ordinary Americans. I haven't seen any surveys of American Jews um, or Palestinians, for that matter, since October 7th. Uh, the truth of the matter is, though, I mean, so much is changing, you know, right before our eyes, and it's, it's very difficult to assess how um, the events of October 7th and the war in Gaza that, that unfolded afterwards are going to affect American public opinion um, in the long term, because much of that will depend on um, how this war unfolds, how it ends, what um, effect this war will have on Israeli domestic politics, and I think the effect, um, oh, I should say, the effect of the events of October 7th on Israeli domestic politics will be enormous. Um, and so because there is so much that is as of yet undetermined, I hesitate to speculate about how this is, how, you know, America's relationship with Israel and with the Palestinians is going to be impacted by all this. I think it's just way too soon to tell. Do you agree with that, Ruth? Or? Um, yeah, yes, I do. And, uh, you know, I'll just offer, I'll add to this kind of a, an Israeli perspective. I've been um, very much attached to Israeli media since October 7th. And, you know, just from today, for example, the discussion in Israeli media and among Israeli officials on uh, 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 Secretary Blinken arriving in Israel and on uh, kind of a behind-the-scenes American pressure to continue the ceasefire. Um, the conversation in Israel is becoming more combative uh, and more um, uh, and, 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 and more critical of United States intervention in telling Israel or, or influencing Israel in what it can or cannot do in Gaza. And this is where um, there, you know, as, as, as Adam said, we, we don't know, you know, things are developing all the time and changing um, constantly, uh, but we might reach a fork in the road where the United States uh, will, when Israel is going to go ahead and, and, and follow policies that its government, its current government, um, favors and the United States government does not agree with, and the United States government is going to have to decide how it's going to address this, uh, especially since the U.S. finances uh, Israel's uh, military. There's there's a package right now on the floor uh, for military aid to Israel. So if that aid, if, if it's true that the United States government's position right now uh, is opposed to the kind of bombing that Israel conducted in Gaza up until this current ceasefire, uh, then at least from what I'm hearing in the Israeli media, the Israeli uh, leadership, including military leadership, is very much eager to go back to that bombing. I, let me just add to that, I, or let me give another take on that, I should say. I, I think, you know, anything's possible, but kind of an emerging schism between the American government and the Israeli government um, over the way Israel is conducting this war I see that as, as not especially likely. Only 24 members of the House have signed the resolution calling for a ceasefire. Only two senators have. Uh, I think the vast majority of members of Congress understand that all of these protesters that they're seeing, um, they're very loud, they get the attention of the media, but they don't re necessarily reflect the views of their constituents on, the, on these issues. Um, and I think, you know, polling data, elections, and so on and so forth, um, members of Congress would need to see evidence in those forms um, to really get them to change their approach to this conflict. And as of yet, um, that evidence is lacking. 
Um, more than 10,000 Palestinians were killed in Israel's bombing in Gaza until the ceasefire, about 4,000 of them children. Uh, these are already verified um, numbers. Um, this is These are more civilian deaths than in the entire Russian bombing of Ukraine. Um, so there is an American national security issue here. Um, and I'm not sure Israel will conduct the war the way right now the leaders of the military and the political leaders are saying they want to conduct it. Um, because I do think that behind the scenes, despite the fact that uh, that few senators and congresspeople signed those ceasefire letters, uh, there is also a behind-the-scenes conversation about what does this do to American national security. And the United States has interest in other countries in the region. Um, uh, there is the question of the stability of Jordan, of Egypt, the relationship with Qatar. Uh, there's very delicate uh, um, relationships with uh, and, and continued conversations with Iran and the nuclear pro the 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 uh, nuclear agreement to, to halt Iran from developing nuclear weapons. Um, I do think that uh, we would see American pressure in a certain way if Israel's uh, right wing of its current government. Uh, takes the lead in uh, determining the policy going forward, which is uh, if, if their stance right now, as it stands right now, is very much in opposition to American national security interests. Well, I, I don't think I want to... We could talk a lot about Israeli politics, but I guess that isn't the focus of our yeah. uh, discussion here. Uh, just to, to kind of finish up here, uh, there have been a rising concern... Uh, about the growth of anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim uh, views in the United States. Uh, and some people think the current conflict has really stimulated that. Before this conflict, the uh, uh, Attorney General testified to Congress and about the growth of both anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim uh, incidents uh, over the last few years. Uh, do you think that is going to be a growing problem in this country uh, uh, are you worried about rising anti-Semitism and rising anti-Muslim sentiment uh, in America? Um, yeah, uh, I'm worried about both of those things. And, you know, we, we heard about the, the three Palestinian students who were uh, shot in Burlington a few days ago. Um, and um, there have been lots of reported incidents of um, anti-Semitic graffiti and comments and, um, and, and other sorts of incidents across the country. And it's, it's very scary, uh, I think, for both the Jewish and the Muslim communities in this country. Um, my hope is that um, over time, uh, you know, uh, tensions will cool a little bit. Um, and, you know, what tends to happen with these things is, you know, when a topic is like this is in the news for a prolonged period of time, um, there's an upsurge in, in sentiment and in actions targeting particular communities. And, you know, I would hope and expect that when this, these current um, matters are resolved or at least um, don't get as much attention in the media, um, 
that uh, these kinds of incidents will decrease. But I, you know, it's a it's a scary time. Um, yeah, I agree with with what Adam said, and I'll just add that from an Israeli perspective, uh, Israel's government often has an interest in tying itself and its destiny with diaspora Jews, as we as we mentioned before, um, which. Uh, which then translates into this kind of really gray area of, you know, of, of putting diaspora Jews in uh, in a very difficult situation when Israel pursues certain policies that they may or may not agree with. Uh, and the bottom line is that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a political conflict. It's not a religious conflict. Um, it's not it's not a conflict between Muslims and Jews. It's a conflict between Israel and the Palestinian people who do not have a state yet. And it translates into anti-Semitism or what some people perceive to be anti-Semitism, partly because we are still having trouble defining anti-Semitism. I do not agree with the IR. The, the current kind of official, uh, some official definitions of anti-Semitism. But as I mentioned before, um, being a non-Zionist or an anti-Zionist doesn't make one an anti-Semite. Um, there's anti-Semitism is a longstanding um, hate that existed before the state of Israel existed, before the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, was uh, was part of uh, of global. Uh, of the global reality, and um, and I think that this is this is part part of the problem is how what we regard as anti-Semitic. Just I'll just speak to that and not to the anti-Muslim sentiment, which I'm also I also agree with Adam is growing as well, as far as I can tell. Um, uh, for example, a, a sign that says "Free Palestine" um, is not anti-Semitic in and of itself. Um, so the the plight of the Palestinian people, um, Palestinian movements, the desire for Palestinians to have a state, that in and of itself, these political um, aspirations are not in and of themselves an anti-Semitic statement uh, or position. Um, uh, I think it, we, we get into very problematic um, debates when we start to talk about the erasure of people's um, I just have to remind from my own growing up in Israel, um, the occupied territories were not referred to as occupation. Palestinian people did not exist um, to Israelis. Um, many Jewish institutions in the United States, when they have maps of Israel, do not include the Palestinian territories. So that from the river to the sea problematic um, statement that was that is considered by many as anti-Semitic when it is vocalized by Palestinians or the supporters of the Palestinian cause uh, has also been on the side of the of the Israelis or what some people would call pro-Israelis. And just to end, I would say that a position, again, a position that is critical of Israel, that is supportive of a Palestinian state, and that is supportive of, of a future that may or may not see the same sort of Zionism or may have an evolution of Zionism is not an anti-Israeli position to have. Uh, it is uh, states evolve. The United States today is not the United States in 1776. Um, and Israel will evolve. Uh, we still don't know in what way it will evolve. But in in 30 years and even in 20 years, Israel will look probably completely different than what it is now. 
So uh, what, what I would say in response to that is I certainly agree with Ruth that concern about for the plight of Palestinians, support for Palestinian freedom and self-determination, all of those things are certainly not inherently anti-Semitic. However, it is important to bear in mind that roughly half of the world's Jews at this point live in Israel. And so supporting any sort of solution to this conflict that doesn't secure the uh, safety and the freedom and the self-determination of those Jews is, in my view, anti-Semitic. And, you know, I would just point um, all of us to a lot of the initial reactions that we saw on social media and other places to the attacks on October 7th, right? A lot of people responded to these incredibly barbaric, incredibly heinous attacks by, by uh, you know, posting things like, this is what decolonization looks like, or what did you expect would happen, or um, serves them right, and so on and so forth. And I think these kinds of um, postings and comments on social media and other places um, so, so kind of confirm to Israeli Jews their suspicion that what is actually motivating um, a lot of this pro-Palestinian advocacy in the United States um, and elsewhere isn't support for Palestinian freedom necessarily, but rather animosity toward Israeli Jews. Um, and so I think um, the folks who are working on behalf of Palestinian rights, they have a lot of work to do uh, to convince Israeli Jews and Jews around the world that it's not anti-Jewish or anti-Israeli Jewish animus that is driving them. Mm -hmm. uh, just to f finish up very quickly, optimistic or pessimistic about the future? Can, can you be either one uh, in, at this juncture? Um, I can't say I'm especially optimistic. This is an incredibly um, intractable uh, conflict for many reasons, most of which we haven't had time to get into. Uh, at this point, it seems like um, there will not be an easy way to resolve the competing claims of Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs. And um, I don't expect uh, you know, significant progress, progress in resolving this conflict to occur in the next few decades, and unfortunately, perhaps not even in this century. I'm going to try to be optimistic, uh, which I usually am not, uh, because if if we're pessimistic as Adam is, then then it's it's really really bleak. Because I think that if there isn't some sort of resolution and if there isn't an agreement that is reached um, between the conflicting sides, then Israel may not have a chance, so so we can't really talk about what's going to happen in a century from now because it's going to be irrelevant. Um, I'm just going to remind everybody that uh, one-fifth, 20% of Israeli citizens are actually Palestinian Israelis, so that complicates this even more. Those are voters um, that are a significant population within Israel, and, and, and they're now in an extremely difficult um, situation uh, with this uh, war going on, uh, I think we have no other choice. And maybe, maybe out of this uh, horrible um, and uh, d uh, devastation, some sort of uh, silver lining will come out. I don't think that any optimistic outlook um, is possible without uh, foreign intervention. 
without pressure. I think the United States, for example, is always already invested. So uh, we've we've already we're already part of this conflict um, for all of these years through foreign aid, military aid to Israel, um, and uh, we therefore need to be part of the solution as well. And if well, that's that's true of other people in the region, exactly right? other powers, right? And so, and this and this was going to be exactly what I was going to say. I think like the what what offers me a little bit of hope is the last few days of seeing this um, quasi coalition of Qatar, the United States, Egypt, uh, the European Union, with a participation of both Israel and Hamas, in ter- in in finding a diplomatic way to reach at least a temporary ceasefire and to return hostages, if that type of diplomacy can be capitalized upon um, and can be extended uh, to make these further, to take these further steps that many of them have already been, um, we already have blueprints for them. There's a 2004 Rand Corporation study, the ARC, uh, that, um, that is very detailed, um, that, that presents the various criteria for a Palestinian state to be viable, um, uh, down to the roads that need to be built and the cities that need to be supported, um, and the financial cost of it. There's, a, there's an op-ed. Yeah, so there's... The solutions there, there just has to be a political will. That, a political will and the kind of political will that we saw following World War II with the Marshall Plan, with an investment of money, with a rebuilding, and with the understanding that for global stability, because we see that this has global a global impact, this one conflict in a very specific region, uh, uh, it has a global outreach in both negative and positive ways, mostly negative probably, okay. that it requires a global solution. So I think... We'll end on an optimistic note that maybe out of all of this chaos and death, uh, maybe something uh, peace will 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 rise up uh, somehow. Uh, so thank you very much to my guest, uh, Professor Ruth Benartzi, Professor Adam Myers. Uh, thanks very much to our production assistant Ellie, who is have is having her inaugural uh, uh, work here as our assistant. Uh, And thanks to uh, uh, the Office of uh, uh, Public and Community Affairs of Providence College for continuing to support Beyond Your News Feed. And thanks so much to our, our listeners.